So we are continuing this short series on 1 Peter. And I said last week that Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, said that 1 Peter contains all that is necessary for a Christian to know. And as you look through Peter's letter, you find that there's a, a big focus on grace, the grace of God, but also on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said last week that Peter is writing to a number of churches, not like this, but small setups, normally in people's homes, who are scattered across this area known as Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And from what he's saying to them, it's very clear that they, because of their faith, are marginalized. They're experiencing rejection and persecution and suffering because they follow Jesus. And Peter recognizes right from the outset and he says it in the opening verse, that they are a people in exile. And uh, we talked a lot about exile last week. Exile is one of the big Old Testament themes and could be defined as a forced absence from home, where people find themselves in a place that they don't want to be in. It's not their first choice world, it's their second, third, or maybe no choice world. They're dislocated and far from home. Um, the poet Douglas McKelvey uh, in writing about exile and homesickness, puts it like this, the shape of that ache for another time and place is the imprint of eternity on our souls. Exile means that we live in a place of ache and pain, as it were. And it can be experienced in a whole variety of ways. It's not just because we're away from our physical home. Exile can happen from the death of a loved one, retirement, moving to a new country, or maybe moving to a new island. Exile can be experienced maybe when we're facing a very difficult church situation. We're not where we'd like to be. Exile is experienced by those who grow older. They're no longer able to do now what they did then. Um, the theologian Eugene Peterson writes that exile is something that we all experience simply by being alive in the world. And I spoke last week about how I think the Western church is actually in a place of exile. How in the past it has been very much uh, at the centre of life, but now it finds itself on the margins. And how within that, the Church of England in particular, uh, except for great royal occasions, uh, when they're front and centre, but then very quickly thrown into outer darkness, can find themselves in a place of exile as well. And that actually, I think, the denomination which we're a part of is having an identity crisis. And last week I said uh, that I thought there were two things that I think we could do to help us flourish. Exile is not all bad. One thing we do need to do though, when we find ourselves in a place that we don't want to be in, is that we need to weep with the tragedy of it. Not to be stoical and say it's okay, it doesn't matter, stiff upper lip and all that kind of stuff, but we weep with the tragedy of it. But equally, as we find ourselves in exile, think of Jeremiah 29 verses five, six and seven, what we need to do is we need to settle down and get stuck in to live in the present moment. And then two references from 1 Peter that we looked at last week, that actually when we find ourselves in exile, where we might feel like we're on the margins, that we're excluded, that we're rejected, we're not part of anything, we need to remember that we are a chosen people. And that even though life is hard, like 
Job, maybe our mantra should be, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, that actually we should rejoice in a place of exile. Peter does that at the beginning of his letter. So that was the summary of last week. And some of you are thinking, well, why did you preach for half an hour on it last week when you've just done it in two minutes? But um, with that in mind, we're going to look at another section from 1 Peter. And Peter in this one writes a lot, if you're looking at the text, a lot about stones and rocks. So with that in mind, shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this ancient letter. And we pray that it would echo down to us over time and that your spirit might speak to us through it so that we might flourish where you have planted us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of you who are big on social media, you may have noticed that there's been a lot of fuss about a silent disco. Has anyone seen that? Clearly not reached Guernsey then. So it's all about a silent disco that is taking place here. Anyone know where that is? Chichester Cathedral. And according to the publicity, some of the UK's best 90s DJs, which must mean they're pretty old by now, but they're going to be there playing your favourite positive vibes for a feel-good experience. And if you want to go, a ticket costs £27.43p. What's all that? Imagine if we still paid in cash. It'll be like, I'll just get the pennies out for you. Anyway, it's at the end of October, and if you're interested, I can give you details later. But the reason why there's a lot of fuss about this silent disco taking place in a cathedral is because a cathedral is seen as being a house of God. It's a sacred or holy place where secular things like silent discos are basically seen as inappropriate, maybe even blasphemous. Now, the irony of all of that is, of course, that when it comes to cathedrals, they may well put on a concert with an orchestra playing, and they may well be playing music from the rather controversial composer Wagner, and everyone will say, oh, that's okay. What a lovely concert. Sometimes I think people kick off uh, because it's just kind of highbrow snobbery. But what you find in cathedrals is that unusual activities have been taking place in them for many years. Um, Not so long ago, Derby Cathedral... Uh, showed films about paganism with full frontal nudity. It was good, actually. Um, (coughs) Norwich Cathedral put in a helter-skelter. And Rochester Cathedral, where I was ordained in 1999, uh, was used as a crazy golf course. Do you remember that? And um, when that happened, national newspapers had some great headlines. And I'll, I'll tell you some of them. Holy in one... Lettuce putt, you don't have to laugh, it's fine. Uh, Fairway to heaven. And uh, my favourite is Rochester Cathedral is moving in the par of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Which is what they say in some posh London churches. But, um, but anyway, response to the unusual activities taking place, disgusted of Tunbridge Wells, of whom there are many, have written things like, what an embarrassing shambles, or... Rochester Cathedral's idea of mission, so devoid of theology, they have forgotten. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Shame on you. I mean, the irony of that is the gate of heaven, you find, is Jacob, who was out in the open, sleeping with a rock as his pillow. He wasn't even in a building. But a key issue, I think, that is identified when this kind of thing happens is whether a building can be sacred 
or not? Do we have holy places and unholy places? Are our church buildings the house of God or are they just bricks and mortar, rather like any other building? One vicar commenting um, on the golf course in Rochester Cathedral said, this cathedral is sacred space, not because the stones are extraordinary, but because what takes place and has taken place over the last 1,400 years has been extraordinary. That is to say, the people of God have worshipped here. And this cathedral has and continues to be a sacred space consecrated for people to worship and encounter the risen Lord. He says, when you stick a golf course in there, personally, I don't think that this being a sacred place is the impression you would get. So that's one cleric's opinion. So maybe a building is holy, sacred because of what takes place in the building over time. You know, I I haven't got the answer to this and I'm not going to push it much further. But basically, you do wonder though, if these walls here could speak, what might they say? One might hope that they might sing and speak in praise of God. The reason for talking about holy and unholy places or thin places where the presence of God seems to be more tangible is because the scripture that we're looking at today from 1 Peter 2 is all about rocks and stones being used to build a holy building. I don't know if you noticed, but rocks and stones are mentioned nine times by Peter in just seven verses. And when he writes about rocks and stones, we discover that he's talking about them in reference to people. So he's using rocks and stones as a metaphor that speaks to something bigger. Now it may well be that Peter talks about rocks and stones because he himself had his name changed from Simon to Peter or Petros, which means rock. So maybe he has got a thing about rocks and stones. But I think more likely, Peter talks about rocks and stones, stones in particular, because if you look through the Old Testament, you find that there are a load of references to rocks and stones. To a first century Jew, which is what Peter was, uh, he knew his Bible well, he would know that the word stone holds a significant promise for God's people. If you look at the text in verse 6, we find that Peter partly quotes from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 28. Uh, Isaiah chapter 28 is the thing, he actually, the real thing. He says, see, I lay in Zion, a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. And so what we find in the Old Testament, and this verse in particular, is that the promise is for for many Jews is that they had this hope that in time, what would happen is, is that the one true God would return to Jerusalem. If you know your Old Testament history, you know there was the first temple built by Solomon, then it was taken apart by the Babylonians, and then there wasn't a temple. And then Herod comes along, who no one thinks very much of, and he's not really a proper Jew and all this kind of stuff, and he builds another temple. Most people aren't that impressed with it. But what we find is, is that first century Jews held on to the promise that one day the one true God would really return to Jerusalem, would come to the holy city known as Zion and would live in the temple. But that would only happen, they thought, when the temple, the house of God, had been properly rebuilt and the right foundation stone or cornerstone had been laid. And so the idea from Isaiah that many Jews hung on to was that if you find 
the right cornerstone and then you build the temple in the right kind of way, then and only then would God return to Jerusalem. And when he returned to Jerusalem and he was in the temple there, his presence would be known in the temple that was built correctly. That was their great hope and desire and prayer. So Peter takes that verse and that hope and that desire, uh, he takes that verse from Isaiah and he mixes it up a bit. He, uh, he, he rewrites scripture. We're not allowed to do that, but it's what he does. And he basically writes to these scattered church communities in Asia Minor and says this, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him, see what he does there, will never be put to shame. And so for Peter, this stone, this cornerstone, this precious stone is no longer a physical stone that will then build a physical temple. But the cornerstone that Peter writes about is a human being, very obviously the risen Jesus. And what Peter is saying here is that a new temple is being built. This is what you had hoped for, but it's being built not upon a physical stone, but upon Jesus. Jesus, Peter claims, is the cornerstone of the new thing that God is doing in the world. If you go to a building, certainly at that time, I don't know what construction is like now, but basically the cornerstone is the first and most important stone to be laid. The cornerstone provides a strong foundation for the whole building and the weight of the building rests on the cornerstone. And the cornerstone then determines the direction of the walls of that building. All other stones need to be aligned to the cornerstone. And we use the word cornerstone to describe what we think might be essential or foundational to a situation. So the cornerstone of democracy is, I'll tell you, one person, one vote, one place. Well, there's a lot of fuss in North America about that kind of thing. The cornerstone of America is the United States Constitution. And the cornerstone of Guernsey is pub just up the road. <laughs> Very good, I hear. Um, <clears throat> and so in verse four, if you look at verse four, Peter refers to Jesus as a living stone. And then you go to verse six and then to verse seven, he refers to Jesus as being the cornerstone. He is the one that they have been waiting for for centuries. And Peter recognises within that, in the church communities that he's writing to in Asia Minor, who are experiencing persecution and rejection by their families or communities or their work colleagues. And, And he takes what Jesus has been through and he speaks right into their situation. Basically, he says, look, you have been rejected But remember this, Jesus, the one who came before, Jesus, the one who is the living cornerstone, has also been rejected as well. He makes that clear in verse four. He says, the living stone, Jesus, was rejected by humans. Verse seven, he quotes from Psalm 118. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter implies that Jesus, the one who those in Asia Minor were following and basing their lives on, was rejected by others and eventually crucified. And he highlights that to them so that they know that when they are rejected, which is what is happening for them, they can actually take some comfort and encouragement that Jesus himself knows what it is 
to be rejected and to be persecuted and to suffer. And one of the big things that comes across in Peter's letter is this, is that rejection, persecution and suffering are part and parcel of this long obedience in the same direction. And it's good to know that Jesus knows what it's like. But then Peter, in speaking about the rejection that's been experienced by Jesus and his followers in Asia Minor, he also then makes a chilling statement, I think, about those who reject this precious cornerstone, Jesus. In verse 8, Peter writes uh, that those who reject Jesus will stumble and fall. Verse 8, he says, a stone, Jesus, that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. He then goes on, he says, they stumble because they disobey the message. What's the message? The message is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And based on what Peter writes here in this letter, I've been reflecting on this. When it comes to big things like heaven and hell and judgment and grace, could the idea of only one outcome for everyone, regardless of choices made in life, could that idea be right? It's what we call universalism. It doesn't matter what you do, who you believe, it's all going to be okay for everyone. It's live and kicking in the Church of England. Because Peter seems to say that those who trust in Jesus... They will be the ones who stand firm and those who reject him will stumble and fall. Our choices made in life do determine the outcome of our lives. And I think we ignore that warning by Peter at our peril. Anyway, back to verses four and five. Peter writes that Jesus is the living stone. He then goes on to say to those scattered communities across this area that each one of them in those communities is also a living stone as well and that we together are being built, he says, into a spiritual house. Peter's clear that God is no longer living in a temple made of bricks and mortar in Jerusalem, which does, I think, beg the question as to whether cathedrals are holy places or not, but that God's new spiritual house His temple is now made up of people across the world who follow Jesus. Each one of us, not just clergy and the holier than thou's amongst us, each one of us carries the presence of God with us. And God's desire is for the whole world to be filled with his glory, his goodness and his presence. And God wants that desire to happen through the living stones being built into a spiritual house across the world. Habakkuk puts it like this, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's big plan is that through us, the living stones, as we align our lives on Jesus, the one who is the cornerstone, we might then demonstrate to the world both in what we say and what we do, who the, the true God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Good old Tom Wright <coughs> puts it like this. Peter believed that all God's promises to Israel had been fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus himself, and that therefore all who belonged to Jesus had now been brought into that people of God, the true temple. The one true God was now living in them. But you might ask, well, so what? All this talk about rocks and stones and cornerstones, what might this mean for us as a church here today? Let me just finish with three things 
that I sense God has been speaking to me about. There's <clears throat> probably 10, I could say, but we're just going to do three. Um, the first is this. Each one of us is a living stone chosen by God and precious to him. In verse 4, Peter writes that Jesus is the living stone chosen by God and precious to him. And basically a simple rule of thumb is this, is that when we follow Jesus, we are described as being in Christ. You find it referred to lots of times throughout the New Testament. And the rule of thumb is this, is that what is true of him when we are in him is also true of us. And so we too are living stones, chosen and precious to God. Peter reiterates that in verse 9 when he talks about our new identity. He says, we, we, you, me, we are a chosen people, God's special possession. Um, My favourite theologian at this moment in time is a guy called Andrew Root who writes a lot of stuff about um, youth work and about how the church can be in a secular age. And one of his observations of the Western church Um, that I share as I've been reading what he's been talking about is that local churches can be very resource hungry. And that basically, if we want our churches to grow, uh, and I think there's a sense of quiet desperation around that, especially as we are a church in exile, then what we need in order for our churches to grow are more resources, particularly in terms of people, money, time, and buildings. And so what can happen is a local church in a local church is that we can then see people, individuals, not as chosen and precious, but as a resource for growth, or maybe not. Recently, I popped into church and there were a bunch of musicians and singers who are learning some new songs. I thought they sounded great. and I'm, I'm hugely grateful for all that you guys do in so many ways. And, and James was here, we stood at the back, and I said to him, James, what a great resource here we have at Trinity, which is true. But I was also very aware that I was viewing these people not primarily as chosen and precious, but as a resource because they had very clear gifts that the church can use to help the church to grow. As a pastor, my own reflections are is that I can fall into the trap of viewing people not primarily as precious and chosen, but as a resource that I can use to help the church to grow. It's dangerous thinking. And I would say that my mind needs to be transformed. Um, So when new people come to Trinity, I can approach them as a resource. So in walks a high net worth individual. How do I know? It's all to do with the shoes. Um, And I immediately think, oh, high net worth individual. Financial resources. Would you like a standing order form? I'm happy with 5% tithe. That's absolutely fine. Now, I don't know who gives what, but people can be seen as a financial resource, primarily. Someone comes in, and uh, in the conversation, you discover that in their last church, they used to be involved in youth work or leading Bible studies, and they're passionate about that, so you subtly give them a form to fill in so they can volunteer for youth work or lead in a small group. People are seen as resources to help grow the church. The trouble is, though, is that there are never enough resources, especially if your church is growing. Churches can be resource-hungry, and then people can be spat out at the other end. But here's the rub, though. What happens when someone comes who is poor in terms of finances? 
They have no obvious giftings or passions. They may not be in a great place. How might they be seen? Well, I'm ashamed to say that they can be seen in a resource-hungry church that is desperate to grow by having more resources. They can be seen as being less than those who have obvious resources. Yet what Peter says in this text is that each one of us is a living stone, chosen and precious to him. Our primary identity is that we are chosen and precious. And that's how we should see one another. Not as a resource to grow the church, but as chosen and precious. How do I, how do you view others at Trinity? Remember the words of James, the brother of Jesus. He wrote this, my brothers and sisters, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We are primarily chosen and precious. Second thing is, is uh, living stones belong together. And where there's a cloud, there's a crowd. A stone or brick on, it, on its own is of some value. You can break a window with it, but a stone or a brick really comes into its own when it's placed alongside other stones or bricks to build a building. A Christian on their own is obviously of value, but Christianity by its very nature means community. It is not a solitary religion. The theologian Cranfield wrote this, the freelance Christian, and we find these guys in Guernsey, they bomb around all over different churches. The freelance Christian who would be a Christian but is too superior to belong to the visible church upon earth in one of its forms is simply a contradiction in terms. We are called to belong and belong and belong. Not as spectators, but as participants. There's a well-known story um, about the ancient Greek city Sparta. And uh, a Spartan king was boasting to a visiting king about the walls of Sparta. And the visiting king was looking all around and couldn't see any walls. And he said to the Spartan king, where are the walls that you're boasting so much about? And his host pointed at his bodyguard of magnificent soldiers and said, these are the walls of Sparta. Everyone is a brick. As chosen and precious living stones, we discover our destiny not by being alone, but by belonging. And I think that as we do that, as we belong, what happens is, is that as we belong and as we wait and as we pray, the presence of God is known more acutely amongst us. The other day, I needed to speak to a heron not a fish, but a member of the Herring family. I needed to speak to either Roy or Nick or Tom. Some of you will know them. And I was walking through town. And guess who I bumped into? Roy and Nick and Tom Herring. Anyway, I asked them what I needed to ask them. And Roy said to me, how's Trinity going? And I said to him, I think we're in a good season. I do think churches follow seasons. They're not perpetually growing it's the way of the world. It's how things are. Sometimes they do find themselves in the, the depths of winter. But we have to remember the way to Pentecost is always, always via the cross. And Roy asked me why I thought we were in a good season. And my response was, well, 
office, Roy, isn't it? It's all about the vicar and his magnetic personality and his amazing sermons. Actually, I said, I don't think it's so much to do with great programs and schemes and strategies, but I think that at this time we're experiencing more of the presence of God amongst us, both alone and together. My observation to Roy was this, is that where there is a cloud, the presence of God, think Moses, children of Israel, cloud by day, fire by night. Where there is a cloud, there is a crowd. People, I think, are more attracted to a local church, not because of programs and personalities and preaching, but because of the presence of God. As we seek to belong together, so we come to know more of the presence. And where there is a cloud, there is a crowd. Okay, third, final thing. Living stones are bridge builders. If you look at verses five and also verse nine, you'll see that Peter refers to those scattered church communities across Asia Minor as being a holy priesthood and as a royal priesthood. Now, there's a lot I could say about priesthood and the Church of England, but I do need to draw my pension and not get booted out, so the less said, the better. But being priest is part of all of our new identity. One of the characteristics of the ancient priesthood in the Old Testament was having direct access to God. Because of Jesus, we now have direct access to God. Another characteristic of the ancient priests was actually that they were there to bring other people to God. And that is part of our identity as well. The Latin word for priest is pontifex, which means what? Any idea? Bridge builder. Bridge builder. Pontum, pontifex. And part of our identity as the holy and royal priesthood is building bridges in our homes, in our places of work, in our communities, so that others can encounter God both in word and indeed, so that we might draw others to Christ. As priests, wherever God has called us to be, we are bridge builders, encouraging others to cross the bridge so they can build their lives on the cornerstone, Jesus. So, lots of talk about stones and living stones in 1 Peter. Let me finish with a final thought. Maybe it's prophetic, I don't know. Before financial services, before flowers, before tourism, and before tomatoes, Guernsey's major industry was what? Rocks and stones, quarries. In the 19th century, granite was taken from one of the 250 quarries across the island. And over four million tons of Guernsey granite was exported to the UK. Someone said to me after the first service, they said um, that people used to paint paintings, particularly of the north of the island, and it looked very hilly. And they said, well, hang on a minute, it's not very hilly at all. You got the painting wrong. And they said, no, no, it was hilly. And then they dug a dirty great big quarry because a, a hoog is a hill, and under that there's rock. And so that's why there's quarries and not hills. Anyway, um, but basically Guernsey granite was used on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral helped build Blackfriars Bridge, London Bridge, the Strand, Thames Embankment, and of course he's found on many roads the length and breadth of the UK. At that time, Guernsey was known for granite, for rocks and stones. It's not going to happen again. Don't get excited about it, Steve. Uh, but wouldn't it be amazing if Guernsey became increasingly known for its living stones? 
local churches scattered across the island where people are known primarily not for what resources they bring to the table, but known because they are chosen and precious. Wouldn't it be great if Guernsey was known as a place where the local churches really encountered the presence of God? Wouldn't it be great if Guernsey were known for its bridge builders, both on the island and also those who are sent further afield to build bridges for the gospel, encouraging others to cross to build their lives on the living stone, the chosen and precious cornerstone. What if Guernsey were known for its living stones? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Shall we stand?